Experimental Sound and Vision. Conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. Manufacturing in upstate New York, Golden Acrylics, Williamsburg Oils, and more recently, Core Watercolors. An employee-owned company committed to producing the highest quality materials while maintaining a culture of stewardship and community involvement. I've been using Golden for over 20 years, and I swear by it. For more information about Golden Artist Colors, visit them online at goldenpaints.com. Lily Stockman is a painter based in Los Angeles and Joshua Tree, California. She graduated from Harvard University and is apprenticed in Buddhist Tanga painting at the Union of Mongolian Artists in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. And she studied Indian miniature painting in Jaipur, India. Lily received her MFA in studio art from NYU in 2013, where she taught undergraduate painting. Most recently, she's exhibited work at Kaiman Reed, Gagosian, and Charles Moffat in New York, Gavlak and Region Projects in Los Angeles, Jessica Silverman in San Francisco, and Timothy Taylor in London. Her work has been covered in New York Magazine, Vogue, Art Info, Artnet, W Magazine, T Magazine, The LA Times, and many more. She has an upcoming solo show in September at Charles Moffat Gallery in New York City. I spoke to Lily from her place in LA for a talk of quarantine changes, growing up in New Jersey on a farm, tube and throat singing, living in India, and much more. Here's our conversation. See, today it's, what, the last day of June or just about... Isn't it funny? Like, what, what day is it? What, what is the difference? Um, <laughs> and my, I share a studio with uh, these two other incredible artists, one of whom you just interviewed, Hilary Peckis. Yes. And um, she, I was listening to her beautiful interview and it's so much has changed just in the two months, I suppose, that you've spoken with her. Crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. These things, really. these things have a, uh, a potency, like, sell-by date. I feel like the, the conversation, like, it changes so quickly. Like, the temperature of everything and it's so heightened because we're all just sitting in watching it kind of you know yeah, in such real time on our phones it's so incredible i think uh the elasticity of the moment is something i've never experienced before yeah. um i feel like i'm learning and absorbing and reacting in such with such immediacy um mostly for the better but i think sometimes it's good to just take a break and come up with your own synthesis of the moment, um, which I've started doing by biking to my studio. Oh yeah. So we live on the, um, on the LA river, which people make jokes about, but it's this incredibly lush little, uh, five mile strip on the LA river. That's otherwise just like industrial waste zones, um, where there's still a uh, river bottom. And when, when the LA river was being paved over, um, it kept the concrete kept cracking because there are these little natural springs in this area. Mm-hmm. So they just left it river bottom. And so there are these magnificent willows and, um, 
native sycamores and all of this wildlife herons, uh, great blue herons and night herons and egrets. And um, we've had ospreys come all the way up from estuaries oh, wow. that are here. So it's this like little woolly, beautiful um, patch of uh, wilderness that I get to bike for 20 minutes through on my way to the studio. So it's a real that's nice moment to pause. Yeah. It's, I feel incredibly lucky. Have you been going to the studio for a while or were you not doing it for a little while? I wasn't doing it. We were, we were in pretty deep with the babies um, when this all started. Yeah. And uh, we have a, she was two at the start of this. She was going to a little preschool and then that shut down and we had a, we have a eight month old. So he was still pretty, pretty little when this started and I have a show in September. So I was just starting to crank into um, like full painting mode right around the clock and then couldn't go to the studio. And so we finally, my husband and I have figured out a, just to kind of, he wakes up sometimes at 2 AM and works until six um and then i go to my studio it's every every couple that i know that has small children and is self-employed is trying to figure out how to do tag it. team yeah not easy yeah it's, it's not I, easy i can't imagine you know that age just well i guess in a way and this is parent talk but i guess <laughs> it's good that your second is that age now like if this happened and it was your first child at that age i feel like oh, forget it you, we forget would get it as parents we would be so freaked out about the yeah whole you'd thing. be hosed no this yeah. kid is just like he's fine he's learning how to crawl he's on the floor the dog can babysit him when we're all home he's great he's so happy go lucky that's good um yeah he's a good good pandemic baby <laughs> <laughs> but it does make getting to the studio feel like such an unbelievable privilege it's yeah. like I'm not feeding anybody. I'm not caring for anybody. I'm, I'm, I have to just, I don't have the luxury of daydream time anymore. You know, no, no parent really does. That's like the biggest loss in a creative practice, I think, is that time no longer exists. And so you just have to adjust. And so my bike ride along the river is my, my kind of transition, which I feel so lucky to have. My husband doesn't have that. He just, goes into our garage and closes the door and their <laughs> kid is like banging on the door while he's on zoom. Let me in. Um, let me in. Play Wait, with is me. he, is he in a creative field? Uh, no, n not, not directly, but he works in water policy. So he, it's a different type of creativity. He's problem solving big uh, environmental and, um, and kind of social issues yeah. as it regards to water. Um, so it's uh, no, easy. no better time window than 2 a.m. Yeah, <laughs> to 6 a.m. for that cracking on at that stuff. Oh, he's incredible. <laughs> he's absolutely incredible. Um, so anyway, we're, we're, we're doing just fine. And, um, it's a really exciting time to be in LA with all the Black Lives Matter protests. It's so energizing and invigorating and inspiring and, um, and amazing to see how our community and the various communities in LA are really coming together. Yeah. Um, so in some ways I think it's an incredible time to have small children because we're, it, it feels like a brave new world. Right. Yeah, totally. Uh, but I've heard, uh, I think I've read in the times this morning that they said it's getting bad in California though. It's really bad. Yeah. Is people um, not doing the whole mask social distancing I, thing. 
I guess I think a lot of people on Memorial Day hung out and now we're seeing the kind of fallout from that. Right. Um, and it seems to be a lot younger people. So it's, um, it, you know, everyone goes through their cycles of feeling total existential dread and then being like, ah, it's going to be okay. And I think the pendulum is swinging back towards, um, dread <laughs> yeah it's like you know the details in a Hieronymus Bosch painting that like towards oh. the bottom of hell but um but anyway then yeah then I go to studio and um try to clear my head for a little bit and um and get 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 into the the mindset of making very quiet paintings yeah is the um is the show still on schedule or pushed back or still on? We're still, I'm, it'll be, um, by appointment only, I assume. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the work, it'll be a real physical show. The work will ship. Um, my wonderful gallery just moved into a new space, which I'll be the first there. They just had a NARA show, which was pretty fun right nice. before the pandemic hit um, a bunch of NARA drawings. Um, but this will be the first show of one of their artists in a new space in Tribeca. It's exciting. Um, so yeah, it, it's exciting. It also feels like an opportunity um, to rethink what a show is, I guess. And yeah. besides just paintings on a wall. And so we've been talking about, we, Charlie and I did a book um, printed by this really beautiful press in California uh, about a year and a half ago. And so I love having some sort of, um, object or something tactile that can kind of come along with the show. So we've talked about doing uh, like a broadside um, that's all folded up that you can send away for having something go through the postal service or something for people who can't see the show. Yeah, that's cool. I love that kind of thing. I mean, I grew up with like, you know, and skateboarding and that kind of culture of like stuff, you know? Yeah. Like the ephemera. Merch and zines. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And playing music, seven inches and merch and stuff. And yeah. That's, a, I think one of my, I did one of those folding, it was like a catalog that folded out into a big poster. Beautiful. And it, had a, it had a CD on it. This was for, this is actually my only show that I had in Los Angeles, which was a gallery called Sandroni Ray. This was a long time ago. And um, that I had electronic music musicians create songs based on my work. So there was actual CD that kind of dates it. But I there was love a it. CD that stuck onto it, like a little part of it. But having that kind of like extension of a show that goes out into different, you know, it can just be yeah. for the people who aren't there or something extra is such a cool part of it, I think. It's so fun. It is. And I think about um, a friend of mine. She probably only lives two miles away as the crow flies. Mary Lattimore. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's an incredible harpist. Oh, wow. And she does a lot of feedback, beautiful looping um, and playing over herself. And it starts off as um, the most transcendent experience being in a room where you feel the sound of the harp kind of in your chest um and then it gets really psychedelic it's so wild and she's so lovely and so i've always had this fantasy of doing a um a, some sort of kind of performance where the paint i you know paint i make the paintings for a specific piece of architecture and she plays for the um the 
kind of way the sound moves in the room. And so now I am fantasizing about all these in-person, um, more collaborative <laughs> <laughs> events for the future. So that's something that's actually been, I don't know, I have a whole note, a whole section of my notebook for, for post COVID projects. Right. The live, what we can do live in the future. Yeah. yeah. Other than like, you know, Instagram live. <laughs> yeah. Or like the online viewing rooms. Oh right. God. Yeah. I know. It's tough. I mean, everyone's trying to do what they can. It was like at the beginning of it, you know, people were just desperately, it's tapered down a little bit. I feel like people are starting to get somewhat comfortable or maybe people are able to go out a little bit, a combination of that and other people just sort of being like, all right, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to be at home and do what I'm doing. And, you know, after a while you just become a little maybe comfortable with it, you know? Yeah. At the beginning when it was like a real, real strict quarantine, I remember like, before they canceled parking rules, I was like worried. Like I thought I'm going to have to walk outside and move my car. Yeah. Which seemed, it's so crazy to Terrifying. think Terrifying. Right. Right. It seemed we, like yeah. a battleground out there, you know? Totally. I remember we, we really stayed in our house. We are lucky in LA. We have a little garden behind our house. And so we were really just jokingly called it on the compound for the first two and a half, three weeks with the kids. And now um, I, you know, I always wear a mask when I go outside, but we yeah. still, we, you know, we, we do a little loop around the block. Um, every, the, the kids wear masks, it's really sweet. They know all about the virus. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a different time. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we get past that soon and the fall isn't what some people are worried about, you know? Yeah. So, um, but as far like, what, did you grow up on the West Coast? No, I grew no, up in New Jersey. Oh, Jersey. Yeah, I'm a Jersey part? girl. Uh, Hopewell. Hopewell. It's kind of in the center of the state. It's not yeah. far. It's like this little sweet kind of farming valley. Is it off um, 80? No. It's, it's further little, south? It's further south, yeah. So it's yeah. it's not far from Princeton is like the biggest okay. town. Um, and like New Brunswick, if you know that area. Yeah. Uh, Not so we as much up, as Northern, but I do know, no, you know yeah. a little bit about it. it how did you, in, what did, what did your parents, they work there? Like how did they end up there? No, it was kind of random. My, um, we, I grew I was born in Providence and my parents lived in Rhode Island. And then, um, we moved down when I was pretty little and, um, my dad's work brought them down there. They weren't affiliated with the university, but there were all of the benefits of the kind of university world, like going to amazing museum shows at the wonderful little art museum there. And yeah. um, my mom was really intent on, I, I remember her dragging us to lectures uh, with architects and poets. She really loved poetry. And um, Robert Pinsky was always around. And so we grew up with a lot of Pinsky in the house. That's cool. And um, yeah, and my mom gave me a real love of poetry. And I'm the oldest of four girls. We grew up on a farm and um, we all we all played ice hockey and drove tractors. Um, <laughs> that sounds so Jersey. <laughs> ice hockey and tractors. Um, and uh, and my parents still live on the on the farm. It's a small, small farm. Is it just like... Them, like animals and just growing like 
vegetables it's alfalfa and stuff? and timothy yeah we grow we have my my parents have a beautiful vegetable garden but it's an alfalfa and timothy farm so my dad grows really beautiful horse hay and then which is right now they're let's see yeah they've just finished up the first cutting and um and then he usually has a second cutting in august and that's the quality is lower so that goes to cows yeah um, well, that's a cool so, environment to, to grow up in and you're not yeah, far from everything. Yeah. And we went to New York and Philly all the time and, um, big family on, on my dad's side all over New England. So very boisterous household and animal, like sneaking chickens inside. And, uh, I don't know. We like, we rode horses to school when we were kids, we were country <laughs> kids <laughs> in, in the middle of New Jersey. And now all of all of our little i don't know we were completely unsupervised and um all of our little secret forts and all of the places we used to run around as kids have all turned into subdivisions it's a very different place now. oh really yeah development um development but yeah no i love new jersey i have major jersey pride well that's a great like, combination because you know a lot of people when they think jersey they think jersey you know what Sopranos. Yeah, or just, you know, the shore or or like Hoboken or something. Yeah. You know, and it's it's funny, there's a there's great farmland. It's beautiful out like it's Western. Beautiful. Jersey. Yeah, New Jersey New Jersey contains multitudes. It's such a secret I don't know, there are a lot of secrets there. But it was a great place to grow up and now um yeah, my parents are still there and my three sisters are all within a two mile radius in the northeast wow. part of LA. So, so that's here. everyone's out in LA. Yeah, I know. How we, did that happen? <laughs> well, one moved out here. Well, I guess I'm I my next younger sister, uh, who's a, a textile artist. She moved. She and I moved out here after grad school, mm-hmm. and um, and then the other two followed. Wow, that's a lot of. I mean, that's so far from the farm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Was there? Uh, were you into music growing up too? Was music yeah, on the farm? Yeah, we um, we listened to. I mean, my my mom, <laughs> my mom is a real deadhead, which is pretty funny because she's kind of prim and proper when you mm-hmm. meet her. Um, but we listened to a lot of Dead growing up. Um, uh, the Chieftains, actually, my mom loved um, Scottish and Irish music, so we listened. Like, the, I think the Chieftains also came and played at the university when we were little and then that's older remember yeah we that's (laughs) older she was already into them um and i don't know uh everything from like you know paul simon sunday morning making breakfast to my dad listening to whatever classic rock yeah in the barn and um I don't know. Now I, um, I got really into tube and throat singing <laughs> in college. Whoa, Do you know what, what is that, that is? No. Um, you would recognize it. It's the, it's the, uh, Mongolian singers. Who, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. What's it called? Um, tube and throat tubin. singing? Yeah. The tuban um, people are from the North part of Mongolia on the Siberian border. And, um, so yeah. And when I'm painting, I think I, I, listen to um, music that can kind of help me transfer out of the kind of current situation. And so something that's really meditative 
um, like to the throat singing or uh, Alice Coltrane, a friend of mine who's a musicologist here in LA, worked with the Coltrane family um, nice. for years trying to re uh, reissue some of her old recordings and then some archives that hadn't been recorded before. Um, you might know Mark McNeil from Dub Lab. Oh, uh, I know. Also well, known I as know Frosty. Yeah. So uh, Frosty's a really good friend of ours. And he, um, he kind of introduced me to when we first moved to LA to Alice Coltrane and we went to some really beautiful recordings with friends of hers. And so I, yeah, I listened to her. That's funny. I've been on a real big kick in the past maybe three weeks of listening to her. And um, it's it's great for that. That kind of trance music, I think a lot of, well, I don't know if a lot of, I think it, it suits artists sometimes when you're in the studio of listening to stuff that you can get lost in. Yeah. And I love a sort of like diversity of that stuff from mm-hmm. electronic stuff that's really kind of abstract and loopy or... or yeah. You know, and then going to stuff like, you know, Alice Coltrane or, mm-hmm. you know, John Cage or, you know, Stephen Reich and stuff like that. I mean, there's so yeah. many different versions of that. I remember when I was in Skowhegan, I got introduced to um, um, like Sufism and like the the sort of like chanting, like that long mm. form, like Nusrat, like that kind of thing, which like, I think is similar or like Zakir Hussain, that like percussive stuff that goes on. Yeah. Like, it's like a song for an hour. And it's oh, so great it's to work. So too. incredible, yeah! It, it, it sort of transports you in a feeling, but at the same time, you're not paying attention to it, like like lyrically. You know what I mean? Right, you just kind right. of like have it going in it. It I don't know. It's weird. It's like a blurry escape, but then you can still focus on what you're doing. Yeah, I I think of it like like swimming. Like it just it it, it becomes the pool. It's like the vessel that you can kind of get into, and then you get into the athletic uh movement of actually paneling forward but yeah. sometimes it's helpful to have a pool to dive into definitely well that's cool so that when you i mean that's a lot later that you got exposed to that kind of music right but were you yeah. did you play any music did you guys no, have any it's my, i really regret it my, uh, one of my sisters is a beautiful pianist i played a little bit of the piano i i took um uh chanter lessons which is the mm-hmm. Um, like the recorder for the bagpipes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, nobody likes somebody learning the bagpipes. Nobody yeah. wants to listen to that. No, it's, it's. <laughs> There's, I like mean, come it's, back when you've got it down, but nobody wants to listen to you learn how to play the bagpipes. Isn't that funny? Like a guitar, it's acceptable. Like someone yeah. noodling around, but like a clarinet or or there's certain instruments that just doesn't work. Like you don't want to hear the, mean, the bad version. The chanter's fine. The recorder, you know, any like you can you can kind of bang it out on the recorder. But once you get once you play the goose, right? Is that what it's called? Once you start playing the bags. Oh right, yeah. Um, that's the part that was troubling for um, everybody around me. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I, I weep every time I hear them, but I, um, I, I cannot say that I ever got past playing the chanter. So no, I'm not, I really love music. I listen to a lot of music. We have a musical house. Um, nice. My husband has a great voice. We love to sing, but we we're, I, I don't really play any instruments. So, um, so instead I paint and I, I feel like I'm uh, also a lot of my jobs until I could, be a painter were in writing or journalism 
Um, and I, I feel the same way. Like I was always uh, kind of one one kind of step of language away from being able to articulate what I was working towards. And that's where the kind of the language or the, the letters or the whatever the little glyphs are in my paintings, I think are the, the vehicle I landed on. I, I studied art in undergrad. I got a, just a regular BA. They didn't have um, a BFA in okay. college. So, yeah. um, but I studied painting with this incredible painter who's in Detroit now named Nancy Michnik. Mm-hmm. And um, she was part of this wave of artists uh, who came uh, to Harvard in the maybe the late nineties. And um, so Harvard is not known as an art school, but they're because they have such incredible resources. They, they have this like low key, fantastic program i'm sure it's changed a lot since i was there but um and it's it was called visual and environmental studies and so visual and environmental being the built environment around you um so it was kind of you took your theory classes and then they shuttled you over to the art history department and eva lambois was running it at the time so taking I think it was like the meaning of abstraction in 20th century art, huge survey course. It was unbelievable. It kind of cracked my brain open. Um, And Nancy made all of her painting students, you know, these are like freshmen that wanted to kind of dabble around and paint. And she made you go take all of these art history classes before she would even let you walk in her studio. And she had this amazing deep voice and she, she would say, don't fucking waste my time. And, um, <laughs> and I remember the first day of class I walked in and, um, you know, like such an eager beaver and, um, she, I'd already met her before and she said, what are you so fucking sunshiny about Stockman? And I just like almost burst into tears and, um, she was such a hard ass, but she was the first person who really took all of us seriously as painters. And so you really felt like you had to earn your stripes, um, to be taken seriously by her. And so she changed my life. She completely, she changed anybody who studied with Nancy Michnik will say that because she was such a force and extremely demanding and very difficult and, um, absolutely brilliant. And she, she went to Wayne State University back in the day. She lived on a Marxist houseboat for a while. Um, she had she lived. When, yeah, she lived. She had a kid when she was really young. She was an amazing mom. She was a taxi driver in the 70s in New York. And oh she goodness. kept, I think she like lost her medallion or something because she was always getting her cab towed because she would just park in front of the Met or the, or go to the Met or the Modern Darling. And um, <laughs> it didn't work out very well. And she was a studio assistant for a while for um, Bryce Varden. And she gave me one of his beautiful little sable brushes as a graduation present. Oh, that's nice. He had given her. So anyway, yeah. So Nancy, what, she was in education in herself. And um, that really, that made me want to, working, being in Nancy's world made me want to be a painter. Yeah. And then the rest of it was just learning how to support myself and how to do it. That's the easy part. Yeah. How do you do it? How, well, so my daughter, did you, as my three-year-old says, what, how it works. <laughs> what, how it works. Did you go to school, though, thinking that you were going to be an artist? Or did you just sort of find it while you were there? 
No, I always wanted to be a painter since I was in kindergarten. I wanted oh, really? to draw. Yeah, I just drew all the time. My mom's super encouraging. Uh, both my parents, but my mom is always, she loved to draw and, as well. And um, so we were really encouraged to be, to entertain ourselves and draw and make up worlds. So um, I knew I wanted to to paint there, but I I started as an English uh concentrator major because it felt like that's how you could at least get a job writing you know, every no matter what you have to be able to write yeah. so i thought well i might as well really learn like give myself some skills and then um take painting on the side and then i got kicked out for a year really yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean it that... seemed like the end of the world at the time but yeah. um a lot of people have to take an extra lap um that come out of the ves department and um i didn't i didn't know if i was going to go back or what i was going to do and um and I, I i got myself back there and then switched switched focus just into the ves department and just painted um like my I life feel, depended on it i feel like i could let that go but i feel like people listening are going to be like wait a minute you have to ask why <laughs> she got kicked out <laughs> um because i failed the easiest math class that okay, they make all the art fine. kids do that's called the magic of numbers wow that's such a pleasant sounding Isn't arithmetic that class so mean <laughs> guess what it was a coding class oh, it geez. was a coding class it was in nanotubes oh it was yeah it was it was really um it was a misnomer. There's nothing magical about it. And I failed it. And then I failed a Latin exam because I was also taking Latin. Um, and then the dean called me in and he said, he invited me to take some time off to think about my uh, academic priorities. Oh, that's nice of him. Yeah. And I said, I'll oh, you yeah, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, I really, I didn't really do this right. And I really want to paint and um I'll, I'll do better next semester he said it's not this is like not a voluntary thing like you need to go <laughs> right. work for a year and you know prove that you're ready to be at this institution it was wow. it sucked it was brutal so then i i had to leave school and get a job and um it made me so hungry to get back to college it made me so appreciative of being able to do that um well, that's a good question. I, I, just to ask, because I feel like very conflicted about education and that yeah. what you were talking about before of like that hardline teacher who's just really tough. And I feel like it's so different today. Like yeah. we are, we sort of massage and like, you know, it's, it, it, you, you don't ever want to be mean. You want to, you don't ever want to challenge someone too much because they're going to, you get the feeling that it's going to crush them and that it could really cause some damage, you know what I mean? But back in the day, so much, so much of the motivation was the fear of disappointing, or like the seriousness and the the heaviness of that stuff, you know. Yeah. So I just feel conflicted that, you know, some of the the experiences and the professors that I learned the most from, and in those situations was ones where I was like almost afraid. <laughs> you know what I Isn't mean? Isn't that messed up? I know, but the, it is. I have, I, I taught, um, I haven't taught since I moved to LA, but I taught at NYU and then I went back to Harvard for a TA um, for a year. And I think in that time, it, the, the 
academia has changed so much, um, mostly for the better, but I, I don't think that the education I received would fly. Right. Um, well, that's my question though. It's like, I don't know. It makes me sometimes feel like an old person, but like, (laughs) was that, I mean, we, it was hard and a lot of that was bad, but I, it did kind of motivate you. You know what I mean? In a way. Oh yeah. Almost like the military. Could you imagine if the military, (laughs) like they're not going to create like soldiers who are going to go into battle. You know what I mean? If they're sort of soft. Worried about hurting their feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, it's okay. (laughs) You don't have to climb that wall in basic training right now. I know you're probably tired. You know what I mean? So, but then that of course being in art school is in the military, but there's something to be said for, I think, pushing and, and expect expectations that people work hard, but I think there's so much fear these days to do that. It's just a conundrum, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think that it's, I have so much empathy for educators right now, especially in places um, where students have chosen to enter into these challenging academic environments where, I mean, that's also part of adulthood, right? Is learning how to, um, articulate and defend your opinion without getting offended. It's just like Ideally. Kind of basic debate, yeah. right? Um, but we live in a very emotional time right now. And I think um, my youngest sister is nine years younger than I am. And it's so fascinating to see how my friends uh, and kind of my age bracket goes about the world right now versus her friends. Um, and uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a really different form of communication and expectation uh, or relationship with authority too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's a, a right way or a wrong way. I get, I would imagine that the way I feel about it or think about it is that those like, you know, you in that situation of that's a real test of getting kicked out for a year. And like those who really want to achieve it or really want to do something or are driven or have that motivation, like, they're either, no matter how hard the circumstances, they're going to step up to that challenge. You know what I mean? They're going to stick with it or to push. And you know what I mean? And and those who just don't really have it in them and they don't really care that much to do. You know what I mean? They're not as driven. They just do something else, you know? Yeah. It was, I, um, the cla- the Latin class, the Latin exam that I filled was a translation of Cicero. Oh, um, that sounds pretty dry stuff (laughs) yeah it's a dead language it's been dried out (laughs) but i love latin i love latin and it figures into my paintings too which we'll we'll get to but um i i loved the i'm i'm naturally a my um a ping pong thinker it's I'm, i'm not the most disciplined and organized thinker i'm um and so i think latin and poetry, going back to my mom and Pinsky, are ways of creating just enough structure or just enough rules so that you can have total felicity with language or within the translation, um, within the kind of, by and just meeting the bare minimum of like, quote unquote, the rules. Right. And um, so then during that whole year off, I, um, I bought like two more copies of the thin little Cicero. Mm-hmm. And just line by line translated and figured out all of the parts of speech and all of that. So that when I went back and had to retake the class and then and the same exam a year later, um, I had it down. Uh, so I feel like I 
I understood the, the, what was at stake and I was on my own. Um, if I didn't get myself back in, I was right. completely on my own. So yeah, the learning of that wasn't that you learned the Latin part of it. It was that the determination or the stick to ofness to just see it through and, you know, right. Totally. Yeah. And that, also that's the, like, like so much shame too, failing out of Harvard. It, um, it felt so shameful, not that anybody cared, but it, you know, I had a lot of pressure on myself and, was a very driven student and um, really failed spectacularly. Conversely, it, conversely, it sounds as punk rock as you could possibly be. <laughs> yeah, I failed out of Harvard. <laughs> like that sounds like uh, a, a story. <laughs> you know, like someone who's a famous producer or whatever it is. It's like, yeah, I failed out of Harvard. And, and then God bless Nancy. When I came back, she opened up her arms and said, welcome back, darling. <laughs> <laughs> and um and we just picked right up where we left off did she smoke during class um she had stopped smoking her daughter had gotten her to stop smoking um but before my time yeah she the so the 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 most kind of incredible thing about the vs department is that it's housed in the only lake Corbusier building in north america oh nice and um and it's this big concrete it's crazy building um that's just on this sweet little you know cambridge residential street and um i don't think i knew who lake Bouzier was when i was a college freshman and all these architecture tours were always coming into the studio and it was such a small department that once you set up your easel that was your spot for the rest of the semester there wasn't anybody else coming in yeah and there were people there there were the painters were there round the clock everyone painted all night it was like a cult and um there was this uh domed skylight we were up on the third floor and it's all concrete with these incredible cantilevered windows um and primary colors going around um the south side so you could control the harsh afternoon sun yeah and um it was with a with a skylight overhead so it was just the most um majestic place you could possibly paint and i think we all had a sense how lucky and incredibly privileged we were um, to be experiencing that. But now, you know, that I'm an adult out in the world and have worked in any number of gnarly, disgusting, you know, <laughs> subterranean little $300 a month studios, I can't believe that I got to do that as an undergrad. And it's almost good that we, you don't know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or else you might yeah. be blinded by it or it would be distracting or something, you know? It's like, oh, you think back to that. I know, but I painted in graduate school in a, in a Rudolph building. It was just, it was brutal, literally a brutalist architecture. Brutal. <laughs> and it was just like the panopticon with like, like concrete, rugged textures running throughout it. It was almost like a, and the, the critique space was called the pit. It just had a feeling uh, of like you're, you're, you're under attack. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. like in, you in were, a dungeon. Which you completely were. We were, yeah. Yeah. And of course, the architects had the area where there was nice skylight, you know, like balconies uh -huh. and windows. And so funny. They put the painters in the dark cave. <laughs> <laughs> so when, but you got through it, basically. I got through it. Oh, yeah. And then I, I loved school and I knew, um, let's see, I guess when I, my, my super senior year, my, my fifth, my extra lap fifth year, um, Harvard had all these wonderful painters come through, like Stephen Mueller. Do you know Stephen Oh, yeah. Stephen Mueller. He passed away a couple years ago. Yep. And, so they would, 
um, pay artists to come up a couple times over the, or, you know, every week, but they only ended up coming until we started having bad weather and blizzards <laughs> and the Amtrak stuff. Right. But they would take the train as I think you do too, um, up to uh, Cambridge and teach an eight hour studio class um, and then go back to the city. And so um Stephen Prina was there and Stephen Mueller came through. George Kondo came. I took a painting class with George Whoa. Kondo, which was that wild. That must have been amazing. Totally amazing. And again, you know, they're just like, what are they, where, like, who are these kids? So they just kind of show up and they just treat you like adults. And, and crits were so straightforward. Um, I think that was actually uh in retrospect such a gift to just have an artist kind of come in the studio context-free and just be like all right what's this like what's going on here like why are you know why why this scale like these these don't have yeah. to be so big um or just taking you really seriously immediately on formal levels of your painting right um and so then maureen galace came and are you familiar with her paintings Oh yeah, we yeah. I had, I had been talking to her about getting her on this podcast and um, it just hasn't lined up yet but yeah, yeah I I love her work. She's incredible and um she was kind of the bookend to my time there and she so has such a um a soft gentle energy that yeah it really causes you to kind of reassess what you're like putting out into the room when you sit down with her. And she really looks for a long time. It doesn't talk a lot. And um, she had, I think it was my senior spring. She taught a seminar and it was maybe five painters and Maureen. And she took us so seriously and really treated us like painters and, um, and said, listen, here's the deal. You guys should all apply for, to go to graduate school, um, go to the place that gives you the biggest scholarship. You don't want to be in debt and you should go work for a couple of years. So you get life experience and can save a little money. It was just so practical, the advice she gave us. Um, and so that's, that's what great. I did. And then I ended up um, going to grad school just to work with her again. And she really became my mentor. Well, that's cool. So she was at NYU. Yeah, she was at NYU. Nice. How was that moving from, you know, from Harvard then going down to the city. Oh, it was so great. I lived in the city right after undergrad. Um, I had a journalism job. And um, and then, um, then I moved, I moved out to the desert for a little while. I moved out to Joshua Tree. And then my now husband and I lived in India. We lived in Jaipur mm -hmm. for a little while. And so I applied to grad school from when we were living in Rajasthan. And so I had like a dial-up internet connection for my Skype <laughs> in an internet cafe. And, um, and there so was all of smooth. these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was incredible. It was incredible. And all of these like gamer kids were just like in my screen looking um, at my Alex Jovanovich and his amazing big glasses asking me questions. Um, and so then I left, uh, and my husband got into grad school in a different city at the same time. So we both, we left Jaipur and then went back, um, to, uh, the States for grad school. So it was, it was like a homecoming coming back to New York city. I was so excited. And I was a little bit older too. I think I was, I don't know, 28, 29 when yeah. I started at NYU. And, um, there were, it was like the CalArts mafia there. There's a big CalArts um, NYU MFA 
kind of sisterhood. <laughs> the CalArts Mafia. Yeah. I just pictured them walking in, like 12 of them. <laughs> um, but like Ross Blechner and Lyle Ashton Harris and... Um, Oh God, who else? I don't know. And and all of the all of the smartest kids in the MFA program went to CalArts. And I felt so behind. They were they just schooled all of us on especially on theory. Um and so I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do. But I did know how to go into the wood shop and build a really beautiful stretcher and stretch some linen uh with rabbit skin glue and that's you know, important. I, like Nancy taught us the real literally the brass tacks of the craft. So I was like, Oh, I know how to make stuff and I just had a lot of reading to do. So, um, you know, again, like a little bit of a late bloomer and, uh, my best friend, um, Michelle, Michelle Young Lee is an incredible photographer and artist and mind. And she also had, she'd been living in South Korea and um, came back to the States. So we had, we were, um, kind of in the going through a lot of the same kind of life stages together while we were at NYU, which made it really a lot of fun. Yeah. And were you going and checking out galleries and taking in the city or were you kind yeah. of oh, hunkered yeah. down? Constantly. Both, yeah. you know, uh, uh, both, but um, Billy Sullivan, I remember we had a crit with Billy. He was kind of always around and um, he asked about some show. I think it was the, um, was something at the museum, new museum that had just opened and only one person in the room had seen it mm-hmm. it's a two-year program but they there's like kind of a third year if you can't get your shit together and you need to stay in the womb a little bit longer and so everyone's together for the big crits and um and billy got so mad because no one had seen the show and uh he was like what's the point what's the <laughs> point of being here you idiots that is your homework. And he just made everybody leave and go. Um, oh, is the, uh, oh, it'll, it'll pop my head. Anyway, um, he made everyone go see the show. So that, you know, that put the fear of God in everybody. Like if you're not seeing what is going on, what's the point of being in the city? So um, that was really good advice. I feel like I probably would have been more hunkered down in my studio had Billy not lambasted us. Yeah. And, um, Sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need that, yeah. Well, there's so much to do in New York, though. You could spend all your time going out and seeing art and music and never be in your studio. That's why, not that I thought about it at the time, but looking back, I wonder, like, if I went to, especially undergrad, if I was an undergrad in New York City, I think I would just be like, let's party. Like, I'm just go out and do all this cool stuff, you know? I know, I know. I Yeah, I um, part of our uh, scholarship was everyone had to teach. Yeah. Um, which is great for some people and then some people it's their worst nightmare, but I really loved it. And so I, <laughs> my first day of school, I had 18, 18 year olds who wanted to take intro painting. Um, and so, you know, you have kids that are not kids, they're adults, but they're, you know, they're just coming to New York. They've, it's like their first week in a big yeah. city. Um, a lot of international students, um, that their, their minds are getting blown. And it's really interesting. You kind of, over the course of the first semester, you could see, um, you know, who takes a hard left and just discovers <laughs> it's like the rumspringa, you know, like <laughs> right. you're, they're not going to do their homework. And, um, it's a, it's like a dance to get people to stay, uh, engaged. And then the kids who are like, Oh, wow, I love painting. This is what I want to do. How am I going to convince my parents that I don't have to be pre-med? Yeah. So 
Uh, but anyway, yeah, NYU was, was, a, was an amazing place. Um, Chase and Mathams and Sam McKinnis were the other two painters and we're all um, still tight. It was really wonderful being such a small group. So you mean those were fellow students? Uh, yeah, the, they were the only other people that were making paintings in the MFA program. Yeah. What year was it? I mean, if you don't mind me asking. Oh, let's see, that was, I guess, 2013. Yeah. Did I graduate or 2012? So paintings jumping back in at that point, right? It wasn't, it's not like the bubble oh, yeah. time. Yeah, that was never, no. And that was Maureen's leadership too. She was, she was like, I don't have time for that conversation. It's boring. Right. Like, you're making paintings. Like, let's talk about painting. Yeah, she seems like she would be you know, a pretty hardcore painting. Um, I think she adds butter to her paintings. They're so buttery. <laughs> they're, yeah. They're, they're like, um, they're, they're like iced cakes. Right. Uh, Frosting. Yeah. They're That's, so exquisite, but yeah. they're also what I think is so compelling about Maureen's paintings when you see them in person, or especially when you see a big installation of them, like seeing them all at 303, last 303 show they're so small the paintings are you know maybe eight by ten and um they're rarely people in them a lot of the buildings don't have doors or windows they're they're really unpeopled landscapes and so um i think people like to make the comparison with emily dickinson's poetry where it you have these kind of fragments um of this new england kind of vernacular um but they're they're closed they're emotionally closed off you're not allowed really inside them and that's very maureen she's um she's extremely private and she's been making these paintings for 25 years and she was like you know part of this whole downtown scene and then she would go back to her little apartment and make these exquisite little quiet seaside landscapes and people i think in some ways they were like the ultimate punk sensibility totally um, yeah they're like so uh antithetical to the aesthetic of the moment right they have a little bit of mirandi feel you know yeah they do just like not like anything else and totally quiet but beautiful and yeah they're pretty great um, so it sounds like you had a good community and you had a good sort of experience and group. What kind of stuff were you doing at that point? Uh, I was doing um, really big uh, kind of botanical paintings and they started to get more and more abstract. And um, then I'm trying to get my timeline down. I guess I had just moved back from India and I, the reason I went there, I was studying with this guy named Ajay Sharma who has an Indian miniature painting school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just making, um, kind of helping him in his studio essentially, which is almost like a guild system. Um, and I was grinding up pigment and painting lines and circles yeah. <laughs> exclusively. Um, Cause I wasn't, I thought I would be painting these like beautiful hunting scenes and, um, you know, Krishna with the gopis down by the river. And uh, he just very gently crushed my ego and said, I, I would like seven years of apprenticing ahead of me to get there. Um, so he just had me work on my lines and circles. So I think by the time, and I was working on these tiny little pieces of ledger paper. So by the time I got back to grad school, I was really 
hungry to work big and work in a more muscular way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I remember having a studio visit with Jack Pearson, um, who kind of like came in and looked around. He's like, what's the deal? What's like, where, where, like, what do you want to do? Where are these paintings going? And he had a long chat and then he said, do your thing in New York and then you should probably move to LA. Cause these are, these are, I think you're going to find your light in, uh, in California. And yeah, so Jack, uncle Jack was right. Isn't that funny um, though? That, yeah. that like it, it could be right and could make total sense, but it's so bold in a way too, to just be like, here's what you need to do. Like yeah. just to tell someone their life needs to be on the other side of the country or whatever. But it, isn't that kind of nice when someone tells you what to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what this is what it, when it works, it's great. <laughs> right, right. Um, you need to so move anyway, to Iceland, yeah. and then you're just like totally ostracized. From, you know. Yeah, but it sounds like it it makes sense, you know. In thinking of you know how your work looks now, that that kind of worked. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I would be making these paintings anywhere else, that's for sure. Or that, you know, they would look really different. Yeah. Um, so we, we've been in L.A. for about seven years, I guess. Yeah. And do you, do you love it? I love it. I love Is it. it. I, it's everything. I don't know. It feels um, there's uh, I'm in love with the city. I have such a crush on the city. I think it's it's so different um in every way from where i grew up and the way i grew up and i feel like it's been this um whole new chapter of education and stimulus um in my 30s maybe the way i kind of fell in love with new york in my 20s i I get to have a love affair with a new city in my 30s in la and it's a great place to be a painter it's a really wonderful place to be a woman painter um it's a a really supportive community also as far as trying to have a family and, and a painting practice as well. Some space. Yeah. And I all imagine the, you know, studio all space is a little more doable there, right? I For mean, the sure. Yeah. I have who are there, they show me images of their studio and I'm like, that's gotta be nice. So annoying. <laughs> I mean, but I will say it's, uh, I think I was paying a dollar a square foot when I moved here and now that's, you can't find that. I mean, it's real estate has gotten so expensive here. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so it's hard. I mean, you know, it, it's a single, single story, but, right. um, but yeah, no, I, I really love it here. And there, I think there's such a history of, um, speaking of the Calarts Mafia, of artists who never really expected to make a living. Like the economic system of the art world was a little more fractious or less immediately connected um, to people making art here. And there's such amazing art institutions. So people were teaching, you're an artist, you teach at Otis or Calarts or um, Art Center. And there's such a wonderful relationship between the kind of art, contemporary art world and teaching and students. And so I think that also then spills over into the institutions here and all the artists on the boards of the museums. And so yeah. I think there's a real fellowship across generations in the art world here that feels um, very generous. That's great. And do you, love. with the sort of, I don't, the spaced out nature, you know, of how the neighborhoods are, that's just one thing I was yeah. shocked at when I came for the first time like in an art context to Los mm. Angeles, not playing music. And it was like, oh, everything's so spaced out and you have to have a car, you know, and 
and I imagine, like, I remember when I had an opening, um, some people showed up and then some people couldn't make it because they were going to two other openings and they were just going to be too far to make it. In yeah. One, which seemed like as a New Yorker, like something, what? you know, yeah. it, like, wow, that's, oh, you have to pick two. And then <laughs> you know? I think there's a really wonderful documentary called Los Angeles plays itself. Mm-hmm. And that helped me understand my city. It's about the the history of development in LA as seen through movies and, and also understanding how different parts of LA stand in for, you know, like uh, mobster Chicago versus like, you know, gritty New York in the seventies or all, yeah. or, um, you know, like Mr. Blandings builds his dream house in like bucolic Connecticut countryside in the thirties. And there are all these different locations around Los Angeles. And it's so, the editing is so great. It's so snappy and it just helps. It's, it's a beaut and the music is really great. I can't recommend it enough. I think it's all on YouTube. Los Angeles plays itself. Um, But LA, if you think of LA as all of these hamlets that just happened to keep growing into each other, it helps understand, um, what how it works <laughs> yeah, like how it got to be the way it is yeah, yeah yeah and so i think that the the upside of that is that it's it's very neighborhoody and so we it's taken us seven years to kind of shrink our various locations down to a concentrated area where we can walk um so you know i can bike with my mask on without seeing you know, with, with, well, seeing very few people along the LA river to my studio, you know, I can, yeah. we can walk to coffee, we can, um, but we still have a little garden. So, you know, you just have to kind of figure out how to make your, the logistics of your life, um, manageable. Well, it sounds like you still have that community though, where you have a lot of friends well in the studio building and then just people that I imagine, well, pre you know, we're not allowed to see other P humans. Yeah. I imagine you were having a lot of, you know, doing your studio visits and you had a good community. Yeah. I really miss that. Um, yeah. it is. I, I, we're, I'm really lucky. I have a, a lot of wonderful, um, friends here. I have yeah. friends here, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it's funny because being in New York, I mean, this podcast, to be honest, has been a yeah. really great way for me to get out and see because you know i have a tendency for years and years when i first got out of grad school and i moved to the city i just work every day my i lived where right. i worked and i wouldn't really leave much and once in a while i'd have a friend over or you know i had a core group of friends that i would do studio visits with but i wasn't like outgoing doing studio visits all the time yeah and uh i think you know doing the podcast made me more you know sort of mobile and getting out there to other people's studios. And, and you really, if you go without it for a while, you really, you know, you miss realize it. Yeah, how great I, it is uh, to have those I, conversations. Yeah. It's, I think Instagram in some ways says that too. I feel like I've made some internet friends have become yeah. real friends just through, you know, realizing also in quarantine, like, Oh, they're also obsessively combing through the catalogs of this obscure Dahlia tuber catalog. They're into gardening too. Yeah. Um, uh, I connected with this writer that I really love through the preservation of Derek Jarman's, the English filmmaker and activist. His garden was just protected um, out in Dungeness. So this is happening, you know, on the in Kent in the yeah. UK, and but everyone can watch this happen live on Instagram. So I think um, there is 
now this kind of like lovely crossover between online life and and like real social engagement and there's so many i don't know i i like especially the east side of la there there's so much crossover between artists and potters and um landscape designers and architects i don't know it's a it's a really um polyvalent creative world it's creative people yeah right yeah. yeah, which is nice. It's it's good to have that connection with people who, you know, are a little outside of what you're doing too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Always like it having we used to do these when I kick this back up, we're putting making that list of like things to do whenever I'm allowed to see other humans, like live music mm-hmm. <laughs> and like dinners with other artists, you know, we used to get together mm-hmm. and have these group dinners. And a lot of times they would be like all painters, which is really fun because when else can you just sit there and have dinner and talk mm-hmm. about painting? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. With a group of people, which is usually I'm not in that environment. I'm talking to other people. So it's, it's really kind of like a great thing to have and to be able to do. Yeah, I think it's the most important, actually, the most important part of being an artist, really. I mean, you have to do your work, but I think having, building that community um, keeps you afloat. Well, and that's what the work's doing in a non-direct way. Mm. You're sort of talking to people through images, and you want to have that conversation, obviously, with as many people as possible. That's why you're showing it and sharing it, you know? And even if it's not a direct one-to-one conversation, you, I mean usually most of us feed off of that of just knowing people are out there seeing what you're doing and you know thinking about it which is kind of a great thing it's one of the the luxuries of being able to show your work and to have Mm -hmm. that opportunity i think that's true which is cool so so you're busy you've got the show i mean i can't imagine (laughs) upcoming show two kids That's the sound. The <laughs> like the panic <laughs> like going up my throat. No, whatever. It's fine. I'm just like in the zone, gonna make the paintings. I just Are they big uh, or small or a mix? Both, but both. both. Yeah. I'm um in in the past I've just worked in basically in these two sizes. So uh, fourteen by eleven, which is kind mm-hmm. of like if you were to put your head inside of a box that would fit your head. Um <laughs> it's head sized and right. then uh, 62 by 50, which is exactly the size of the bed of my truck. Um, it's manageably it's, big. Yeah, right? very, very practically. It's also my exact wingspan. And so um, I, there's something, uh, it, I guess, important to me that I can be fully autonomous in my studio and move everything myself. Yeah. Um, and very now, practical. but. Yeah, very very practical. It's a it's a nice size. It's like a body size, you know, when yeah. you're standing. And I like to hang them a little bit low, the big ones. So that when you kind of are standing in front of them, you are enveloped in this space. Um, and I'm also working on some some big ones, a hundred inches um, long or wide. Nice. Um, that's big and is it so acrylic oil mixture oil oil and oil, oil and indian linen and indian linen is um, rougher than belgian or irish or german linen and um the in the milling process the fibers are a little they get a little more frayed it's a it's a shorter fiber actually so when yeah. it's um spun and then woven they there's little kind of breakage which creates this tooth 
Yeah, they're, they're, it's a really tight weave, but they're toothy and yeah. um, but also kind of I don't want to say fuzzy because once you prime everything, it's really smooth, but it gives this really beautifully muscular surface that I really love painting on. And so when you look at images of my work, it looks very, I think it looks really flat and graphic. Um, but then hopefully when you see them in person, there's this kind of surprise of how um, imperfect and layered and nubby the surface can be. Can we start that Instagram appreciation group? Cause I'm right. In there. <laughs> I mean, people see my stuff on, you know, in reproduction, they think it's super flat or there's no uh -huh. texture or no hand or anything, but there's a lot of it. You just can't yeah. tell until you get right up there. Right. Which is yeah. so important, but 90% of the people who see your work don't see it in person. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Which true. is kind of it's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. Cause it feels like yours have it, like there's, I don't if it's incorrect to describe it as like a haze to some of it or yeah, there's like no, a, that's a lovely way it's kind to of like aura them. or ethereal quality mm -hmm. to it that I think, you know, that's kind of like in person, that's important. You know what I mean? Because in reproduction, you, you can't really totally get that. I, I have an amazing uh, photographer who now really has it down. Um, they're nice. really hard to photograph and, um, they, some of them are. And when there are these really slight shifts in, hue or value or if it's just the same um exact same color but a little bit you know of medium added down and there's just kind of like this little kind of miasma line that goes around and he's been yeah. able to figure out how to sh how to how to photoshop those to get them right but i also you know they just are what they are and some of them photograph better and some of them are impossible and that's fine and those paintings can just um wait to be seen and i think um i'm i'm certainly aware that in especially during covid most people are seeing them um on the screen or in pdfs and i'm fine with that but i what i am working towards is hoping that when people do see them in person there is this um this like little when we were talking about alice coltrane like talking about this little vibration that you get yeah. um when seeing these colors kind of move into each other what's so much like you know and to appreciate both sides of it it's like live music versus the recording yeah you know certain stuff you can't get in that recording that you feel in the live show but then there's certain things you can layer and play around with in the yeah. recording that you just it's hard to do that live so they kind yeah. of both have their they have their lanes Merit. right yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I, I mean, I'm excited for the, the show. And can you, like, sort of plug all the information of people, like, where they can find your stuff? And, and you do social sure. media, too. You're active in that. I do so. it. I do it. Um, I have, I'm in a show opening at Jessica Silverman in San Francisco um, in two weeks. Mm-hmm in the middle of July. And then um, I have a solo show at Charles Moffat Gallery in New York opening September. And um, they're both on Instagram and are both incredible people and have really um, beautiful programs that I feel really lucky to be a small part of. And then I'm on Instagram. It's my name, Lily Stockman. Sounds good. Well, thanks for talking. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for chatting. Yeah. It was really lovely to talk with you. Likewise. <laughs>